Mm, we're live now. Okay. <laughs> I was talking mad trash on this. <laughs> like they are not gonna get it for today's lesson. Believe. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? <clears throat> you know, it's Tuesday. Oh. Always good on Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. All right. So if it's Tuesday, then that means that we're just not sitting here having fun and just chatting just to, you know, like like brother and sister. No, we're actually here to teach something, aren't we? Yeah, we're about to get all up into it. Um, you know, we have this is what week three now? Yeah, like week three. Like, you know, we're we're coming pretty fast on these lessons being, you know, moving forward. So, you know, I think that the thing that a lot of folks don't realize is each week is like going through a quarter long like course and all condensed down to one hour. Mm, okay. That's that's the interesting mm. part. I wonder the biggest question is I wonder who's actually doing their homework. Well, <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> okay, yeah. Confessional. The chat room is now a confessional. Go ahead and tell the truth. <laughs> tell the truth now. Did you do your homework? If you've been doing your homework, then put a note-taking um, emoji in the chat. And if you haven't, then I want you to put a um, shake in my head, like, I got to get it together emoji in the chat. Just tell the truth, you know, just or tell. The, or, the wa- or the walk away emoji. <laughs> One of the faves. I don't have to see a confession. I never truly budgeted on a monthly basis. I shouldn't fear that, though. Well, first of all, no, you shouldn't. But first of all, the B word, I do not use the B word. Okay. It is like straight buzzkill for me. So I just like to say my money plan, like a monthly money plan, a yearly money plan, quarterly money plan. To me, that has more more energy than budget. Budget sounds so boring, but that's just that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me. I'm like jacking up Mark's audio in his ear right now. Yeah, you are. But you know what? I'm. I'm getting adjusted. I'm getting adjusted between between the pain in my tooth mm-hmm. and then also, you know, just the, the auditory <laughs> vibrations that are taking place right now. Mm-hmm. You know what? The spirit will overcome. I'm, I'm sitting over here like, Lord Jesus, fix it. <laughs> All right. So this is, I think Drake had just asked, she said, what day are we on? This is week three. Yeah, so this is week three of executive education, which is for those of you that, you know, if you're new, like, welcome. Welcome to the Come Up series. I'm your wonderful co-host, Mark Monroe, accompanied by my wonderful co-host, co-producer, co-creator, all things galactic with a new GC, but she'll unveil that later. Give it up for none other than the wonderful. Yo, 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 yo. It's me, oh. <clears throat> Jolene GC, and the place to be, aka First Lady of Leisure. What's up? Hey, hey. And so this is the education from we, we, we thought about doing it in a different manner because on Mondays, you definitely have Lawrence holding it down for the markets as well as economics education. And he's doing a phenomenal job there for it. So if you're an investor, trader or just a person that wants to go even deeper into economics, definitely check it out on Mondays. Monday Night Take is definitely a phenomenal one. The guests that he brings on and then on top of that, the heat that he brings in, he's doing a phenomenal job. So salute to you. Uh, Lawrence, you're doing a phenomenal, uh, you're doing God's work. So uh, congratulations. And then so JoLynn and I, we were like, you know, we've been at this. This is our fourth year. And so we were like, you know, we're not going to be leaving the Come Up series. But, you know, it's kind of like this moment where it's time to pass on the live torch to other great minds, other great thinkers, other great teachers. And that's what we're in the process of preparing ourselves to do. So, So that's why we had pretty much put it on uh, our 
pretty much put it on our hearts. And, you know, also one of our charges for this year is to give you 52 weeks of just pure straight game knowledge, as well as to challenge your mind. So that way, by the end of the year, you'll probably have the worst headache, but at the same token, have tons of knowledge to fulfill and to supplement for that headache. And so we called it executive education series because we realized that essentially that, you know, who are we if we have all this knowledge that we got to instill it into you. And so one of the things that comes from my background and also from JoLynn's background is from a business background and multi different facets. So you're going to get that in a form of kind of like an MBA-esque, except with a little bit more flavor and a lot more vibe. So here we are. And a little sauce. Mark, you know, I had an epiphany. So um, so when we first started the Come Up series, right, we were talking about, you know, closing. Our goal was to close the racial wealth gap within a generation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I've been really thinking about that. And that is no longer, it's no longer resonating, especially given like what we're kind of like the shifts that we're moving towards for future stuff. And it really feels like instead of closing the racial wealth gap, it feels like we're building a whole ladder. Yeah. So this is just one of the rungs. You know what I mean? Yeah. On that wealth ladder. So yes, it is. So this is like this is like consider this the the season finale or the series finale of JoLynn and I, and wish that you get it in just pure straight knowledge every week. So without further ado, you know what? We've been talking a lot, so we need a little break. Go ahead and cue that intro for me, please. All right. All right. So today we've got a doozy for you. I hope that you have your pen and paper or pencil and paper and hope that you have tons of it because today is definitely going to be one of the heftiest courses that we've ever taught as a masterclass with the challenge of within an hour-ish or so. There's a lot to get into. So, Jolene, are you ready? Totally. <clears throat> I forgot to say it Right. Earlier. All right. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we forgot to shout out like who was the first in the chat. Oh, you know, who was that? That was uh, Brother Lane. Okay. Shout out to Curtis Lane. Thank you for having your notification bell on. We salute you for being first and on top of that for consistently being a supportive cousin to us. And we hope that we make you proud and we hope that we just definitely give you tons of value every week. All right. So let's get into it. All right. So yeah, please like the video, by the way, uh, with with Kayla. Like, subscribe, do all that. Thanks. All those good things. All right, so let's get into it because we got some heat to get into for this executive education this week. So, Jolyn, today we're talking all about managerial uh, finance. So we're still within the financial landscape series of our early education for uh, executives uh, or future executives. And so this is going to be something that's crucial. So let's go ahead and break right into this presentation. We're going into presentation mode. All right. So 
here's the thing to understand. Like if you're understanding these concepts, you can make more informed investment decisions that align with your goals and risk tolerance. All right. So you're going to hear about risk. You're going to hear about a lot of things. But, you know, those are some of the key points there. So, you know, also you'll you'll be better you'll be better equipped to analyze a company's performance and make predictions about its future profitability, um, which you can help or which can help you, so to speak, to identify potential investment opportunities. So that's what it's about here. Like, you know, that's kind of like the underlying tone, but not only just in publicly traded markets, but you'll also spot them in, let's say, startups. You'll also spot them in different facets whether it's also nonprofits and wherever you may see it. So, you know, that's the focus. A lot of you are probably asking like, you know, hey, Mark, you know, how is it that I can get like you or how is it I can be better than you? Well, if you want to be better than me, then this is where really where it starts. It really starts in the lab where it's like you really start to really hone in on those skills and also to develop further skills and continuously challenge yourself. So in today's course, it's going to be greatly challenging, but greatly rewarding. So uh, let's keep going. All right. So. What's on the list for today's discussion? There's a lot to get in, but I want you to think about it in three key phases. One is understanding, two is prioritization, and then three is measurement. So with an understanding, we're gonna do some definitions and scope. Uh, we're definitely gonna talk about time value of money. We're gonna talk about capital budgeting as well as working capital management. And then moving over to prioritization, we're gonna talk about financing decisions, risk and return, mergers and acquisitions, and then how you look towards like things as a measurement, you look at financial markets and institutions as well as corporate governance. So we've got a lot to get into it. So, you know, Jolyn, do you have anything to, to, to discuss as it pertains to, you know, what you see here on this, uh, this table of contents? No, oh, I think you covered it. Okay. All right. So oh, managerial finance, here we go. All right. So without further ado, let's look at it in three different phases, shall we, to keep it simple. So the basics, so managerial finance, and mind you, I will be reading this also because of the fact that there are some cousins that listen to this via podcast on Apple or Spotify. So simple, shameless plug there, but also at the same token, if you're driving or if you're out and about working out, you can also hear great education and knowledge in your executive series. So let's define it. It's the branch of finance that concerns itself with the managerial significance of financial techniques. Now, that's a lot to be said there, but I'll get into it. So let's let's make it a little bit relatable. Though a subset of corporate finance, managerial focuses on the specific financial decisions that managers make in order to achieve the goals of the corporation. So as you can see, there's there's the corporate finance umbrella, but then within it, it's pretty much the subset within corporate finance in which that makes up managerial. Uh, there's other parts of the finance part, but this is a major part of it. And so what is its impact? It helps focus on helping, it helps people focus on helping managers uh, evaluate the trade-offs between risk and return, make capital budgeting decisions, manage working capital, and make financial decisions. So when we think about it, right, when we think about like the branch and everything else, you know, it's the branch that, it's the branch of finance that concerns itself with the managerial specifics, right? So for example, when you think about managers, we're thinking about VPs, we're thinking about folks who maintain budgets, who think about headcount across different uh, sectors of the corporate landscape. So when we think about the relationship between managerial and corporate finance, managerial, like I said, it's a subset, 
which is concerned with the overall financial management of the corporation. So on the other hand, it focuses on specific financial decisions that managers make in order to achieve the goals of the corporation. So as you can see, like that's where we go from definition to relate. And then as you can see the impact, you know, from simple definition, we say, okay, hey, it's a small branch or it's a, it's a major branch. How does it relate? It literally helps as it pertains to managers making key decisions. And then what do they do? They, they find those, those trade-offs as it pertains to risk and return. All right, so let's go into the next phase, shall we? Because how do what does that look like, Jolyn, if we're thinking about it from, let's say, a real world perspective? I think that we have the case study of Walmart, but how can we how can we look into this? Well, you know, Mark, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the segue is killing me. Okay. <laughs> Um, so we have Walmart as our case study, which is actually a pretty good one because, you know, they're the largest retail company in the world and they use managerial finance to make important decisions about their operations. One specific example that comes to mind is how Walmart uses managerial finance in its decision-making process for investing in new technologies. So mm -hmm. think of it like this, the company's managers evaluate uh, the potential costs and the benefits of investing in new technologies, um, such as automation and digitalization. And then they make decisions about which of those technologies to adopt and how to allocate those resources to implement them. Because um, mm. you know, there's always competition with Amazon, which we talked about Amazon last week. I think we're talking about them again this week. They just, they're really um, like fertile ground for a lot of these examples. So. Um, again, Walmart, they also use financial analysis, as we discussed last week, to identify areas where the company is underperforming and they make those decisions about how to improve efficiency and reduce cost. So this particular Walmart um, example is a really good illustration of managerial finance, and it's a critical tool for decision making in large companies like Walmart. And it also showcases how it helps them to achieve their goals and improve their performance. That is correct. So when we look at like, uh, for example, and it's kind of interesting if people have been kind of like paying attention to like what's been transpiring over time. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at like where we started with digital leadership and recognizing the challenges or recognizing the opportunities that sit ahead and making those conscientious decisions that will literally have that will literally drive impact later on. Then we got into the part as it pertains to financial reporting and business analysis, being able to like look at key performance indicators looking at SWAT, Pestle, and all those different types of things, and then seeing exactly how it actually came back into the foray of that decision-making process. And then now it leads us into the managerial finance. So as you can kind of see, they all kind of tie in back together. All right, so let's move on into the next phase, which is time value of money. Okay, so time value of money is, is, is to keep it simple, is an idea that money available today is worth more than the same amount of money available in the future due to the opportunity cost of not having the money today. Okay, so this is because money available today can be invested and earned interest while money in the future is subject to inflation and opportunity costs, right? So like the, the consequences later on down below. Or, or later on below, uh, and you know, as it pertains to it, you'll see it when I do the formula. All right, so when we think about time value of money, right? And like when we think about it in its concept, it's very important as it plays in managerial finance because it helps managers to make decisions about the allocation of resources. So allocation of funds 
So when managers are evaluating investments, opportunities, they need to take into account the time value of money in order to determine the true value of the investment. So the, that really has to take place. So let me repeat that for folks, because I think that, that that probably missed some folks here. So when they take, they need to take into account the time value of money in order to determine the true value of an investment. So if we're looking at that, so if we're saying, if we're, if we are trying to understand the true value and we say that time value of money is the idea that money available today is worth more than the same amount of money available in the future, then that kind of lets you know, it kind of gives you perspective as it pertains to why you see companies today making strong investments in specific places and then later cutting their operational expenses later on down the road once they've reached a certain key point. And then essentially now you're starting to see, okay, hey, boom, here we go. All right, so let's let this uh, kind of play out, right? Because let's there's, there's some things that we need to think about when we look at uh, time value of money. So some of the things that we have in this overview is one, interest rates, discounting and compounding, and then present and future value. So let's look at interest rates, the cost of borrowing money. So for example, if I want to borrow $100, how much is it going to cost? The bank tells you it's going to cost you 10, it's going to cost you 10%. So that's the cost of borrowing money. So 10% is the cost. So it is the rate at which a lender charges a borrower for the use of the assets. And in this particular case, it happens to be, say, for example, cash. All right. So when we think about discounting, so discounting is the process of calculating the present value of a future cash flow, while compounding is the process of calculating the future value of a present cash flow. So let me run that back for you because it could be a little bit of a, of a riddle. Discounting is the process of calculating the present value of a future cash flow, while compounding is the process of calculating the future value of a present cash flow. So it's kind of like they, 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 they reverse each other or they inverse each other. And then when we think about present value is the, is the value of money today. And future value is the value of money at a future date. So I think that that's pretty self-explanatory, right? So when we think about interest rates, right, like where we, where we talk about like interest rates are the cost of borrowing money and they can have a big impact on the value of money over time. Like if you ever look at a person who, let's say, like has a mortgage in which that they're doing an interest rate on a 3% mortgage is completely different than, say, for example, a 6% mortgage. You know, tell that to the folks in whom which that wanted to buy a house, you know, last year, but then found themselves seeing interest rates rise. It definitely had a significant impact uh, of the money over of the value of money over time. So, for example, a loan with a lower interest rate, like I had just said, will have a higher time value of money than a loan with a higher interest rate. Pretty self-explanatory. And then when we look at discounting and compounding, right? It, as we said, discounting is a process of calculating the present value of a future cash flow, while compounding is the process of calculating the future value of a present cash flow. So when we look at these concepts, they are crucial to understanding the time value of money and are essential for making investment decisions. So when we look at present value, like the current value of a future payment or a series of payments, taking into account the time value of money and an interest rate. So if you have a deposit of, let's say, $100 in a bank that pays an annual interest rate of 5%, then the future value of your deposit after one year will be $105. This is calculated by multiplying the present value uh, of 100 by 1 plus the interest rate of 5, which equals 105. All right, so let's let's get into some math here because, and this is where I told everybody that they're going to want to like actually, you know, you're going to want to take notes here. 
And I wasn't I wasn't capping when I said that because which leads me into the next part. Net present value, aka MPV. See, this is where a lot of folks they wanted to get in with, say, for example, looking at you know my world in venture capital, or you know, you want to look into the into the world of how you know folks in MA or in, in executives, folks who make financial decisions, even financial institutions, how they make decisions. Well, you're starting to get into it today. And so we're gonna we're gonna take the gloves off. So I'm gonna try to take it slow, take it step by step for everybody. But again, make sure you take copious notes. And that's the reason why I left the formula up there for you. All right. So when we think about net present value, so we think about uh or aka MPV, it's a metric used to evaluate the profitability of an investment or a project. So it is calculated by taking the present value of the expected cash flows generated by the investment or project and subtracting the initial investment. So if you look at if you look across, you're going to say, OK, all right, MPV net present value equals R to the T, uh, which is the net is the net cash at time. So at time T over one plus I, which is the discount rate. And the T represents the time of cash, the time of the cash flow. All right. So, and yes, you can, uh, you can unplug, you can put this into a Google sheet formula. You can actually look up net present value on Google and they'll probably ha- already have templates there that can also uh, help you there. But let's look at it in the, in the basics, right? Let's, let's get to the basics first before everybody tries to jump off on the deep end. So when we look at a positive of MPV or a net present value, uh, so a positive means the investment is worthwhile. An MPV of zero indicates the inflows and outflows are balanced. And a negative MPV means that the investment is not desirable. So when you think about like if you're a startup founder and you're looking to pitch in front of an investor and then they start going through like, you know, your financial projections, looking at your future cash flows and everything else. And then they're seeing, OK, hey, this is what my original investment is. So let's say, you know, I make X amount of investment. And then I look at your cash flows. And if your cash flows are still by the time when we reach a certain point in time, that is still negative. That's not going to look like a viable investment to me, the investor, which would probably say, which would probably tell me no, not to invest in it. And investors do this pretty quickly as we start to go through uh, the financials of a company, even if it's pre-revenue company. It's fairly simple, though, that everybody likes to do the the hockey stick financials. (laughs) You always tend to see them. It's, it's always interesting because normally when you see those hockey sticks, it's like, OK, hey, every single entrepreneur out there is going to be overly optimistic. And then sometimes if we're the first person talking to you, then we're going to be the ones that bring you back down to earth. All right. So let's get back to the let's get back to this presentation now. So when we look at the net present value of venture capital firm, like like I had just talked about. Uh, might use MPV to evaluate a startup's potential profitability by estimating the future cash flows the startup is likely to generate and discounting uh, them to their present value. So the firm would then compare the present value of the cash flows to the startup's initial investment to determine whether the investment has a positive MPV. If the MPV is positive, the firm might consider investing in the startup. Now, if it's zero, which means that, again, that if it's balanced, then that lets you know that it's like a, a, it could be a hit or miss um, at that point in time. Maybe we consider that maybe you were just coming in at worst case scenario or if it's coming in at a negative, And if we're seeing that, then honestly, there's going to be some there's going to be some challenges there. All right. So I know I just said a lot. <laughs> I, just I know I just said a lot. Numbers, a whole lot of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I know I said a lot. But unfortunately, there's more. <laughs> there's more. 
So using an investment as an example, right? Suppose you decide to invest $1,000 in 10 shares of a dividend stock. So we're going to bring it back to the stock market for those in whom which that don't want to think about the startup world. So suppose you decide to invest in $1,000 in 10 shares of a dividend stock uh, that recently paid a $10 dividend per share. So then you expect a 10%, you know, either aka 10 cents return of your 100 on your total investment each year. So again, to calculate that, you would let's go back to the formula. So let's 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 go back to the formula so that way everybody can see this. All right. So when we think about it from the standpoint of let's see here. So when we think about it, right? So can every, can everybody see this? Yes. So remember this formula. Yeah. So MPV equals R over t, R to the T over one plus I to the T. So if we think about that, right? So that R to the T equals 100 divided by one plus, you know, 1.10. So $1.10 uh, times one equals 90.90. The result is 91 rounded to the nearest dollar. So in other words, the hundred you earn at your, at the end of your uh, end of year one is worth $91 today. And that's ultimately how you were able to calculate that present value. And I'm not done. <laughs> and I'm not done. Um, okay. All right. So here's the part where we get into a whole different formula. And this is something that, you know, a lot of, you know, venture capital firms, this is how they, how they make their, how they make their significant decisions as it pertains to making investments. Many, uh, venture firms or private equity firms are judged by the IRR. Same thing as probably hedge funds and also, you know, some of those other related funds on Wall Street. And so it's called pretty much internal rate of return. And it's pretty much a metric used to evaluate the profitability of an investment or project. It is the rate at which the investor earns back the initial investment. So if you think about it, right, it is the discount rate at which the net present value, uh, MPV, of the investment or project is equal to zero. So the IRR, the higher the IRR, right, the better the investment is considered to be. All right. So and I know a lot of you guys are like, well, hey, Mark, the, you know, how does this equate to, let's say, you know, return on investment? So I'm going to give you guys a breakdown of how is it that you can determine the differentiation between IRR and ROI without formulas. We'll get we'll get back to that formula. But ROI calculates, say, for example, actual returns, whereas IRR. So ROI calculates actual returns. IRR calculates potential returns, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. IRR incorporates timing of returns. Okay. ROI is just in a is a single period measure. <laughs> so it's just like literally single period. That's it. All right. When we think about uh, IRR, it requires more data, whereas ROI is typically known as much more simplistic calculation. So let's go back to that. Let's let's get to this formula. So, and, and nine times out of 10, you guys are going to hear me give you like something from like the venture capital world, because I tend to believe that that's sometimes the easiest way, but I'll try to find another way within this presentation to make it simpler if it's, if it's a little bit too difficult. All right. So in venture capital, we use IRR, like I said, to evaluate the potential profitability of a startup by estimating the cash flows the startup is likely to generate and calculating the discount rate at which the net present value of the investment is equal to zero. So if the, if the startup's IRR is higher than the firm's required rate of return, then we might consider investing in the startup. So actually, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take this challenge here. I'm gonna take this challenge. Let's let's just do something different. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do an example while everybody looks at the while you look at the formula. Okay. So say you're on the fence purchasing a Tesla. So let's say that you own a business and you're like, hey. 
you know, you know, I, I run a transportation business, so I transport people. And let's say that, you know, I want my business to buy a Tesla, but the Tesla costs a hundred thousand dollars. Now I knew for folks like they're like, Hey man, of course he brought up Tesla, but I feel like in this particular case, Tesla is <laughs> going to be an easy option for folks. So yeah. let's just say that it's a hundred thousand dollars to buy this Tesla right now. So it, it costs a hundred thousand dollars to purchase the Tesla, but then at the same token, you project the Tesla will bring in $40,000 in annual profits each year. So remember that $40,000 each year. So until year six and normally around when we see year six in business is like, especially if you've purchased some type of equipment or something like that for the business normally around year six it's likely to be out of date or no longer functioning now in the, in the case for tesla that may be a little different but just ride with me in this example um it may be considered out of date or no longer functioning and at that point you'll sell the car for let's say ten thousand dollars yeah so wait so you're saying mark you're saying in year six <laughs> we're selling the car the tesla for for ten thousand dollars okay but from year one all the way to year five, you've brought in $40,000 each year. Okay. So let's just say now year zero, right? That's the year that you made the investment, right? Right. So year zero, that's a, you've already had to take a negative cut at $100,000 because you paid $100,000 for the car. Right. All right. So, and we could bring me on screen if you want to. All right. So, but when we think about it, so year one, $40,000 in profit that that car gave you. Year right. two, $40,000. Year three, $40,000. Year four, $40,000. Year five, $40,000. And year six, $10,000. So if you think about it, <laughs> that's pretty solid. So when you look at that as an internal rate of return, right? If you're looking at it like, and this is what a lot of businesses, when they start thinking about like, the real businesses that are going to do well, they think about it in that type of manner. So by me buying, let's say, any type of device. So even if I went and said, OK, hey, I'm going to spend $10,000 on buying, let's say, a bunch of equipment. So including a bunch of tech equipment. So like computers, screen, all this other stuff and software. Now, by me spending that $10,000, it nets me, let's say, you know, X amount of dollars every month that literally plays into the IRR. So in the in the case that we were talking about Tesla at $100,000. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, the IRR in this case would be 29% or about almost 30%. So if that IRR is higher than the hurdle rate, or, you know, pretty much or the IRR of another similar investment. So which means the hurdle rate is pretty much you're comparing against any other investments that you, the business has made. Okay. Now I want people to understand this because we're going to get into this and you're going to see how it kind of like corresponds into publicly traded markets. So for example, if I'm looking at, let's say an Apple and Apple gives me this type of IRR percentage rate, but then I look at it across, I'm judging it across the other things that are within my portfolio or other investments that I made. How is that doing in comparison to those things? And that's going to determine whether or not I chop something or essentially I essentially add more to the position. So and so you, you you're considering it. Right. So it's probably a smart use of your funds when you think about that. And that's going to lead us into the next thing as we go into back to our presentation, uh, capital budgeting. So let me talk about Gatorade break. <laughs> All right. So for capital budgeting, everyone. <clears throat> so it's the process of evaluating and selecting long-term investment opportunities for a company 
which includes investments in new products, new markets, new technologies, and new facilities. So if we're talking about strategy, another important aspect of capital budgeting is considering the impact of the investment on the company's overall strategy and goals. So a company may have a great investment opportunity, but if it doesn't align with the company's overall strategy, it may not be the best choice. And so if we think about like, why is capital budgeting so important? Well, it's, a, it's an important aspect of managerial finance um, as it helps managers to make informed decisions about the allocation of resources to long-term investments. Additionally, it enables managers to evaluate the potential profitability of an investment, that's very key, and compare mm -hmm. it with the company's overall strategy and goals. Pretty, pretty interesting. I can see how it can relate, Mark, to investment decisions. Yeah. So let's let's talk about it because there's there's which leads us into investment projects, right? And there's three of them. There's three types of investment projects. So when we think about like the three, there's replacement, there's expansion, and then there's turnaround. So replacement is uh, pretty much projects that replace existing assets and are usually considered to be less risky than expansion projects, right? Because if you're replacing it, it's like it's pretty much kind of like you know what you're getting, you know what you're investing in, or you know you know what to expect. It's like it's not going to be many things that are going to just jump out at you and like catch you off guard. All right, expansion. Now, expansion, like anything, like if you look across any like business, and like the reason why I'm telling you this as it pertains to investment projects is. Because remember what I said as it pertains to investment IRR and all that other stuff, you know, all those wonderful formulas that I was showing you. Mm -hmm. It's like if you start thinking about it, you know, and if we look beyond companies, look at yourself like you can you can apply the same knowledge to your own personal finances. So like when you make investments as it pertains to a replacement, a replacement is something that is very much so utility where it's like, you know, you're going to need it. You know, it's it, you know, it's value and you know, it's consistent. When you think about something that is expansion, that's a project that you're normally taking on that's going to carry a little bit more risk and at the same token cost a little bit more. So when we think about projects that involve expanding the company's operations, such as opening new stores or entering new markets, these projects are usually considered to be more risky than replacement projects. So if you think about the hierarchy, you got replacement and then expansion. And then, of course, you got turnaround projects that are intended to improve the performance of a struggling business these projects are usually considered to be high risk. So they're higher risk than expansion. So let's load it up for you. <coughs> Excuse me. So when you think about replacement, I mean, we got, we kind of got that one. Mm -hmm. When you think about expansion, let's, let's start applying some companies to it, shall we? Okay. So let's think about it, right? If we look at expansion projects, that would be like, for example, Meta investing into the metaverse, spending billions of dollars to expand their company. It would be like Amazon paying. And if we look at replacement, we would look at Amazon's replacement. Instead of doing two day delivery, they're now looking to do one day delivery. That would be considered replacement. Okay. Now, if we're looking at, let's say a if we're looking at, let's say a turnaround. Right. So then that would be, say, for example, looking at, let's say, a GM or a Ford, because why? They're not, that's not an expansion. That means that you're having to change your company overnight. So going from internal combustion engine all the way to changing your entire process to completely electric and getting it by a certain date and time, that's very high risk. Right. Now, of course, high risk can also pay off and have high reward, but yet at the same token, it's like, you know, now, somebody asks, is the turnaround only high risk because the company is already in jeopardy? 
that could be one of the things. So, for example, if the company is looking to make a turnaround where it's like they need to make changes and they haven't done well, then yes, that can be high risk. Another way that turnaround can also be in a place. Oh, somebody says, would the example of Microsoft investing 10 billion into open AI suffice? Yes, that would be considered as, say, for example, a mixture between replacement and expansion because they already have a search platform by Bing. But at the same, actually, it could be, a, it depends upon how you look at it because Bing has been a struggling part of Microsoft's business in which that, that can actually be considered a turnaround project. Or depending on how it depends upon what the business case use is going to be and what Microsoft is going to use open AI for. So that's the biggest thing. But if you look at the entire, if you look at it across the board, though, it's not much high risk for Microsoft, though, that they're investing $10 billion. Then if they're looking at it over, say, for example, a certain run rate over X amount of years, then it's not really going to say, for example, be that heavy of a cost if they're already bringing in, let's say, Let's say it's justified if Bing is brought in over on an annual basis. If Bing is bringing in about, let's say, between two to roughly, you know, or let's say one and a half to roughly four billion dollars a year in annualized revenue, mm -hmm. then at that point in time, that's not going to be a huge high risk for for Bing. They're going to take the they're going to take the hit up front, understanding, looking at the IRR and saying, hey, we can have a better upside than what we currently have. Now, Mark, okay, so looking at this, how does this apply to um, our like portfolios and our own investments when we think of yes. an expansion turnaround? Yeah, so when you think about replacement, right, that's kind of like the thing, never subsidize losers for winners. Mm -hmm. So if you already have a winner within your portfolio, then essentially you're not going to get rid of the winner in order to, especially something that's over an, a long-term period. You're not going to sacrifice a long-term winner for somebody in whom which that is like not proven or anything like that. Now, what you will replace it for is something that you believe that a company has already been proven and they're steadily improving and they're steadily showing signs of growth and they're, and they're in a growth phase. That would be considered a replacement because of the fact that the evidence is there. An expansion would be like, say, for example, going even more above and beyond, because like we said, involves expanding the company's operations or expanding your portfolio. You just move the word operations for portfolio, such as opening new positions or entering into new sectors. Uh, these uh, these potential things usually considered to be more risk than risky than replacement projects or replacement positions. So replace positions or replace projects for positions, replace uh, what is the operations for portfolio, replace new stores for companies and then replace new markets for sectors. Gotcha. All right. So let's think about it. Let, let's get back to this presentation, though, in a sense of looking at what because I, I didn't add on some things into this presentation that I wanted to mention that I had it jotted down in my notes. One being payback period. So okay. the payback period is the amount of time it takes for an investment to generate enough cash flow to recover the initial investment. So remember what I was saying about Microsoft as it pertains to them dropping $10 billion into open AI. See, that's the part where they're looking at it over a payback period to say, OK, hey, if we're bringing in this amount of annualized revenue, then it's not going to be that heavy of a hit. And we see a hot we see this as a higher upside moving forward. And then when we think about real options analysis, right, this is a method that evaluates the flexibility of an investment by considering different scenarios and the ability to adjust the investment based on new information. And we see this happen all the time. I think the best way to look at it is. You see a lot of companies do think about payback period alongside with Wall Street, but Wall Street very much so heavily looks at real options analysis 
when they're consistently looking at rotation from sector to sector or from company from different companies within the publicly traded markets or different investment vehicles. So in one year, they'll go bonds or in another year, they'll go growth tech. And in another year, just like last year, they'll go from tech into energy sectors and then essentially they'll switch it up. So, again, that's ultimately how you can see it as it pertains to an options analysis in which that you're staying flexible and seeing opportunities and taking advantage of them. Okay, so then the next thing that we're going to look at is risk and uncertainty. All right, so simple things as it pertains to risk and uncertainty. As we know, risk refers to the likelihood of an investment not generating the expected return. I mean, I think that we can look at it. If it's low risk, then essentially, you know, better chance as it pertains to essentially return. If it's high risk, then it's like, okay, hey, high chance of you losing your uh, investment, but at the same token, at the same token with high risk, high reward, low risk, low reward. All right. So when we think about uncertainty, uncertainty refers to the challenge of predicting the future outcome of an investment, which is very hard because, you know, it, when you think about it, it's hard for anybody to really predict the future. You could be a student of the market for your entire life and still many times get it wrong. All right. So when we think about some of the techniques, right, there are several techniques that can be used to evaluate investment opportunities, such as the net MPV that we talked about in IRR. Now, these techniques take into account the time value of money and the risk and return of the investment. Now, of course, now when we look at uncertainty, though, one of the key challenges in, in, in uncertainty is, is capital budgeting. And that's, and that's dealing with the uncertainty. In most cases, the future is uncertain and it's hard to predict uh, exactly how an investment will perform. So capital budgeting techniques help managers to make decisions based on the most likely outcome, but also take into account the potential risks and rewards of the investment. So which leads into the next thing, because we've been talking about it a little bit, which is capital, which leads us into working capital. If you don't have working capital, <laughs> I'm sorry, um, don't expect to be in business very long. All right. So working capital. Uh, the management of a company's short-term assets and liabilities in order to ensure the efficient and effective use of resources. So this includes managing cash, inventory, and accounts receivable. So again, like I said, you ain't got these, you're dead in the water. It's over. Call it. Um, so when we think about effective capital management, uh, it's crucial for a company's short-term, like we said, you know, because again, there's a lot of obligations there. Like, for example, managing cash, inventory, and AR. Um, but it also helps a company to ensure that it has enough cash on hand to meet its short-term obligations, such as paying bills and employees. Uh, it also helps a company to manage its inventory effectively so that it has the right products on hand to meet customer demand, but not so much that it ties up capital in unsold goods. Now, we saw this happen last year with quite a few companies where they had a lot of supply that was sitting there and they had to literally, they found themselves pretty much stuck. Like look at Target. They had so much supply that they had to do their very best to get it off their shelves and which ultimately started killing their actual, like their, their margins. It was, they were taking, they were having to shave points off of their margins in order to get rid of the inventory. We saw the same thing with the chip sector where they were oversupplied due to weak demand within the PC marketplace. Now, again, it's like it took time for it to flush through the system, but a lot of these things uh, like, you know, again, you know, it, it happens. It's just a part of the process as it pertains to the ease and flows. Okay. So let's get back to it. Let's look at some techniques though, or let's discuss some techniques. So there are various techniques so that can be used to manage working capital, such as like, the, like I said, managing cash and accounts receivable. These techniques 
uh, include cash budgeting, inventory management, and accounts receivable management. So making sure that you have somebody that can manage the people that will pay you. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Uh, also making sure that you have something that's keeping you on top of where your inventory is. And then on then the third thing is making sure that you have a solid cash money plan or a solid corporate <laughs> money plan or personal money plan. <laughs> that essentially is like you don't find yourself in times in which that things become slow, you're not left high and dry. Which leads us into something that you actually discussed a little bit earlier, which is a case study. Oh, let's talk about Amazon. So you already know Amazon, this company has a very strong focus on keeping its operating costs low and maximizing its cash flow, which enables Amazon to invest in new technologies and expand its business, even during economic downturns, which we saw. Um, The result is that they manage their cash flow effectively. So if you want to look at, you need an example of a company that does a good job of what we're talking about here, um, look no further than Amazon. So we already know that Amazon is, you know, this e-mobile commerce juggernaut, right? It uses working capital management to ensure the efficient and effective use of its resources. We have seen this time and time again, especially throughout um, the pandemic. The company has a very efficient process for managing its inventory, um, which is crucial for its success in the highly competitive e-commerce market. We already talked about um, Walmart earlier, so that's in that Amazon uses advanced analytics and forecasting techniques to predict predict customer demand and order inventory accordingly, which helps the company to ensure that it has the right products on hand to meet customer customer demand. So you're not waiting forever for shipping, um, but not so much that it ties up the capital in unsold goods, which also keeps um, Amazon competitive. And I will note, Mark, when you look at the Amazon trucks, like you might receive a box that is like way too big for your item. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because Amazon stacks their, um, they don't waste space in their truck. So they stack it like Tetris. And so you may get a box that's a little too big, but it works for efficiency and getting that um, shipment, saving money and getting it to you as fast as um, possible, especially if you are a Prime member. Well said. So let's look at, say for example, uh, financing decisions. Okay. <laughs> so when we think about financing decisions, uh, pretty much they are the decisions that a company makes about how to raise funds it needs to operate and grow its business. So this includes decisions about issuing debt, issuing equity and obtaining loans. So let's get into that. Let's talk about debt and equity financing real quick. So um, when we think about debt, right? So debt is the process of raising funds by borrowing money, typically through uh, issuing bonds, This is a form of long-term financing and it's a liability for the company. I mean, of course, you know, when you look at a lot of the publicly traded companies that become public, a lot of folks know that it's like they could be profitable as it pertains to, you know, revenue versus expenses. But at the same token, a lot of the publicly traded companies walk into going IPO, carrying a lot of debt on their balance sheets. Um, And then there's the other part, which is, for example, uh, the equity part. Now, this is typically happening a lot in the early stages of a company all the way through its growth phase, which is pretty much the process of raising funds by issuing stock. Uh, This is a form of long-term financing and it's an asset for the company. So for example, when you see that you know, uh, a company makes a stock offering when they're publicly traded, like you've seen it happen quite a few times, then that lets you know that essentially that this is actually a good thing for the company. Because then if they're hitting X amount of benchmarks, only thing that you had to give out was stock. 
Um, but then there's also the mix, the mix of debt and equity that a company uses to finance its operations and growth. The optimal financing mix is the one that maximizes the company's cost, capital, and maximizes its returns. So what does this look like when we think about it from a simple standpoint as it pertains to debt and equity? So when you raise a debt round, if you're a startup company, you probably hear about a lot of them getting convertible notes or doing some type of loan base where essentially over a maturity date, by the time they reach a maturity date, either they have to pay back the loan or essentially that turns into equity, which turns it into a mixed bag. Now, if again, if they're doing an equity round and they're just immediately just offering pretty much to the company for, uh, for capital for stock in the company. And that, like I said, it turns that financing, the long-term financing, and it's an asset for the company. All right, so let's get back to this, this thing about risk real quick. So like I said, risk is the potential for an investment to lose value. So return is the gain uh, or loss on an investment over a certain period of time. So I just wanted to make sure that we kind of like sum that up for everybody as it pertains to risk. But there's there's a starting five for risk. Did you know that, Jolene? Um, yeah. There's five different risks. Mm -hmm. There's five different risks that people should definitely be very much so knowledgeable about. Now, of course, Everybody always looks at credit risk as the most uh, one talked about, maybe liquidity risk. Um, but let's go through all five. So when we look at market risk, so that's the risk of that the value of the investment will decline due to market conditions. So if you're an investor or a trader in the market, you understand market risk. Um, and then we also talk about credit risk, which is that the borrower will default on a loan. And this is not only just, say, for example, a company. You also see this as it pertains to also countries as well, which gives them their ratings as it pertains to how they're rated uh, of, of their potential to default. And then when we look at interest rate risk, the risk that changes interest rates, uh, that, that changes in interest rates will affect the value of an investment. So this typically happens a lot. For folks, you know, on the individual side, when you think about bond buyers or bond or bond holders, or say, for example, folks, even in the real estate market. So, for example, if you're on a variable loan where you have, you know, that the, the rate can significantly change from go from low to high and you can find yourself in a position where it can be very much so affecting you. Um, that's where interest rate risk comes into play. Currency risk, the risk that changes in currency exchange rates will affect the value of an investment. So we saw that also last year. The dollar was significantly high versus other currencies around the world. So then that made U.S. equities not look uh, attractive across the board. And then let's look at liquidity, the, the risk that an investment can be sold quickly enough to avoid a loss. So again, it's like, you know, acquire or sell the company to essentially cut your losses. All right. So let's get into this thing called portfolio theory real quick, Jolene. All right. <clears throat> Dang, time is gone. We got seven minutes. All right. So for portfolio <laughs> theory, well, if you've been following the commercials, you know how how I feel about raggedy portfolios. But um, portfolio theory is a framework for understanding how to construct an investment portfolio that maximizes return while minimizing risk. It suggests that diversifying investments across different asset classes can help to reduce risk. Well, we know this is because different assets tend to perform differently under different market conditions, which we saw last year. So by spreading your investments across different types of assets, uh, you can reduce the risk of losing money if one type of asset um, performs 
poorly. So for example, if you invest invest in like a mix of stocks, bonds, and real estate, then your portfolio will be less affected by a recession in the stock market because the bonds and real estate are less likely to decline in value during a recession. My own personal example of this for my own um, balancing risk when SMH, you know, was acting um, a plum fool, it's okay. Uh, so when <laughs> SMH and I had our toxic, you know, toxic relationship, um, back and forth, up and down, all that, um, I also invested in businesses. And so that offset my um, portfolio. So now that the businesses like bolstered my overall like financial wealth, you know, empire portfolio, now the profits from that will... Um, match with SMH and their um, excellent <laughs> value right now because they're kind of low. So we'll see how that how that works. The balance, you know. Imagine the IRR on that one because the IRR on your businesses that you have invested in are higher than SMH. So I mean, <laughs> right? But when SMH is ready to get that act right, that's a whole different story. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So let's talk about the other part of that theory, which is capital market theory. So capital market theory is a framework by uh, for understanding how uh, financial markets work and how to value financial assets. It suggests that financial markets are efficient, meaning that prices reflect all available information and that investors are rational, <laughs> meaning that they make decisions based on the information available to them. So when we think about the efficient market, uh, guess uh, <laughs> suggests um, <laughs> that it's impossible to consistently achieve returns that are greater than the market averaging by picking individual stocks or by timing the market. So like they say, time in the market is better than trying to time the market because prices already reflect. Now, here's a gem for y'all. If many of y'all are not paying attention to anything that I said, remember this thing that I'm going to tell you today. Prices already reflect all relevant information. So the prices that you see today already reflect all relevant information as it pertains to the stock. Just want to put that there. That was so loud. <laughs> I, yo, man, like sometimes people don't be hearing me, but I was like, look, I'm going to punch back this year. I'm just going to let you all know that. So an investor can't consistently achieve higher returns than the market average. So... So just remember that you, by, by stock picking and market timing. So we understand that. So, But they can achieve higher returns by diversifying their portfolio, uh, thus reducing the risk of their portfolio. So portfolio diversification, right? One uh, way to manage risk is through portfolio diversification. This means kind of like what Jolyn has said, we're investing in a mix of different assets such as stocks, bonds, and real estate, rather than putting all of your money into one investment. But okay. Mark, really, this is a personal preference, though. It's a personal preference. It's a it's a personal preference. Right. You know, so depending on depending really. on your risk tolerance. Yeah. Depending on your risk tolerance, depending on what is it that like, for example, I don't invest in real estate, but I definitely do invest in a lot of businesses. I invest in a lot of startups. Um, and then on top of that, I do invest in stocks and multiple different derivatives there. But again, it's like it again. Remember, what is your risk tolerance? What is it that your risk is set up for? I do want to add too that you can also um, like if let's say like your portfolio is all um, options or let's say that's the asset class. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you can diversify that by investing in different industries and different sectors. Different sectors. 
different sectors. So, so like, for example, if you're bullish on one thing, but yet at the same token, that risk in your mind goes off, then it's like invest or trade into something in which that like is against the grain. Like I always say, like, and I think I took people through the matrix with this a while back where I was like, okay, hey, choose one company. But then at the same token, if this, if you believe that this will fail, what do you believe that will be the winner? Or what do you believe will be the better performer mm-hmm. in the pivot? And so those are the things in which that, you know, again, for people to to pay attention to. All right. So let's get back to it because yeah. we, we only got a little bit of time and I think that we're going to run gonna over. So, over. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to try to fly through this as fast as I can. All right. So let's look at this. Like when we think about cost of capital, because I kind of talked about this last year, but I'm going to go a little bit more in depth. So the cost of ca- the cost of raising funds. It's the rate at which a company must pay to raise capital, including debt and equity financing. So it is the minimum return that a company must earn on an investment to make it worthwhile. So when you think about what took place last year, when people were looking at, you know, why was the market down? The cost of capital started to go higher, which means that if the cost of capital is going higher then what is going to be invested in is actually going to be much lower. So something to keep in to mind. But just for the sake of the conversation, you know, let's 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 play out this example. So company X has one hundred million dollars in debt. Right. And the current interest rate is five percent. And then they have equity outstanding at two hundred million dollars with a 10 percent return. Okay. So let's let's look at that, right? So the cost of capital is used as a benchmark for evaluating the profitability of new investments and projects. So like I said, imagine you want to invest in a publicly traded company called whatever <laughs> to evaluate the company's new uh, investment and project opportunities. You need to know the company's cost of capital. So cost of capital is the percentage at which the company needs to earn back the money it borrowed or the money invested by the shareholders to make the investment worthwhile. You can calculate the company's cost of capital by looking at the company's financial statements and adding up the cost of its debt and equity. So let's go and let's go into this, for example. So I've given you guys the example early on. So let's break it down, shall we? So let's say the company has $100 million in debt outstanding with an interest rate of 5% and $200 million in equity outstanding with a return of 10%. Uh, so that's a that's on that $200 million, it's a return of 10%. So the company's cost of capital is, what is it? So you're going to do the interest rate times the, times the debt, which is 5% times 100. And then plus, you're going to do 10% or you're going to do, yeah, so 5% times 100. And then 10% times 200 million. And then that's going to equal up to five, you know, and then 20, and then that's 25%. So that equals up to 25% as it pertains to cost of capital. So if a new investment or project or project is expected to generate a return less than 25%, it would not be considered a viable investment for the company. And that's ultimately how you're breaking it down. That's good to know. Okay, so let's talk about M&A because you're, you know, we talked about this earlier last year, but let's get into it a little bit. And, you know, and, and Jolene, I'm actually going to let you take it because since we talked about it, you go ahead and teach it. Mergers and acquisitions. All right. So we know that a merger is a combination of two companies to form a new company and in a merger. The stockholders of the merging companies transfer their shares to the new company in exchange for shares in the new company. So let's look at an example here. Um, Let's go with Disney. So 
2018, Disney acquired 21st Century Fox. Y'all remember that? Which was a merger of two companies to form a new company. So that's an example mm -hmm. of a merger. Then when it gets to acquisitions, um, an acquisition is the purchase of one company by another. We talked about this extensively last week um, in financial um, uh, analysis. So in acquisition, the acquiring company pays cash or stock to the shareholders of the target company in exchange for the ownership of that target company. So another example that Mark, you mentioned um, Meta earlier, but in 2020, when Meta was Facebook, Facebook acquired mm -hmm. um, Giphy and a company that specializes in creating and sharing animated GIFs, it GIFs, GIFs, however you want to say it, in a cash and stock deal. Um, I don't remember how much it was, but it was. Do you remember how much it was? Oh, don't even ask me. Okay, honestly, so, I didn't. I didn't think that. I I thought that it wasn't even worth what they paid for, but you know, whatever. Well, can I don't even actually. Never mind. I'm gonna reserve that comment. So anyway, um, <laughs> mergers and exits can be done. They can be done for various reasons, though. So it could be to increase market share. Uh, gain access to new technology or new products, reduce competition. So if you're buying up, you know, a small fish that stands as, you know, perceived threat, you just enroll them into the company, aka, AKA as an acquisition um, or a merger. And now you, um, now that's you, that's all you. So the threat has been uh, taken care of, or it could be to diversify your revenue uh, streams. So just as a heads up, Facebook did acquire Giphy for $400 million, but then UK is ultimately uh, trying to force Facebook to sell it. Okay. I don't know if that's going to play out, but we're, we're going to see how that all plays. All right. So let's get into the thing where we're, we've reached the final point, which is we're in the final slides, which is uh, markets and governance. And I'm going to fly through this fairly quickly. All right. So, Joel, so this is actually right. on you. <laughs> okay. So, I'm just going to say this. I can, I can take it if you I can take it if you want me to. I'm just going to say this. You can fill in whatever blanks you want to say. This is what okay. I want to say about this financial markets and institutions is that um one actually Mark, I'm going to cover the definitions that are coming up. Okay, you got it. Okay, go All ahead. Right. You can do this one. You can do this one real Okay. Quick. So, when we think about market financial markets, platforms where financial assets are traded. So, two main types, financial markets are in uh, so two types of financial markets, one is public and then the other one secondary. Uh, so, you know, pretty much keeping it simple, uh, simple examples of financial markets include the stock market, the bond market and the foreign exchange market. And then when we think about financial institutions, those are organizations that play a key role in the financial markets by facilitating and buying and selling of financial assets. So examples of financial institutions include commercial banks, investment banks, insurance banks and uh, mutual funds. So when we think about financial markets and institutions, they play a clear, critical role in the economy by channeling funds uh, from savers to borrowers and by providing a mechanism for the efficient allocation of resources, uh, to sum it up in a nutshell. All right. So let's talk about government because, you know, governments can also play a part in financial markets. So government uh, plays an important role in the financial markets by implementing and enforcing regulations, providing oversight and promoting stability and efficiency. So you guys may know of such a person. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there you have it. So when we think about regulation, uh, so the government, uh, regulates financial markets and institutions to protect investors, maintain market integrity and promote stability and efficiency. Uh, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission is responsible for regulating the securities markets while the Federal Reserve is responsible for regulating banks 
and other financial institutions. So, I mean, I think that that's pretty simple, but then there's this other thing that we like to call oversight. So the government provides oversight in financial markets uh, to ensure that they are operating in a safe and sound manner. For example, the Federal Reserve. So they conduct uh, regular examinations of banks to ensure that they are uh, complying with laws and regulations and maintaining adequate capital and liquidity. So you probably hear about Powell talking about that where they talk about a consistent test as it pertains to what? Uh, can you stand, can you be able to be stable in the midst of a financial recession or if things get tight? Right. Um, it, it, you had the tight, it's all about stability. So again, if you have it, then great. Now, you know, based upon how we've seen how Federal Reserve has acted recently, you know, that's, this is going to be somewhat of a, of a, sub, a tough subject for some folks. Stability. The government promotes uh, stability in financial markets by implementing policies that prevent financial crisis and mitigate the effects of economic downturns. For example, the Federal Reserve can use monetary policy to tools such as, you guessed it, interest rates, interest rate adjustments to stabilize the economy and prevent financial crisis. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> So, which then leads us to efficiency. The government promotes efficiency in financial markets by implementing policies that encourage competition, innovation, and the free flow of capital. For example, the SEC can remove regulatory barriers to entry and encourage the growth of new technologies and financial products. So, there you have it. Mark, we're going to so, have our cousins at the Fed back. You said what? We're going to have our cousins at the Fed come back. Oh, oh yeah, that's definitely happening. Yeah. That's definitely happening. We're actually supposed to be, you know... Don't worry, we're in talks. Okay. So let's talk about corporate governance, and we're going to move through this one fairly quickly as well. So when we think about corporate governance, it's pretty much a system of rules and practices and processes by which the company is directed and controlled, right? So let's look at you know some of those controls. And I'm going to leave this over to JoLynn. So she said that she's going to take all the terms. <laughs> all righty. So what I want y'all to do is get some index cards, make some flashcards, you know, for these handful of definitions, but uh, just like as an overall uh, brief overview of everything that's on here. So, okay, we're talking about board of directors. You know that the board of directors, they're responsible for making those strategic decisions and overseeing the management of the company. And they're elected by the shareholders and they are accountable to the shareholders, okay? So then the shareholders, you already know, they're the owners of the company. So that is many of us, we're shareholders, right? Of different companies. We have the right to vote. I hope you all do exercise that right to vote on important matters such as the election of board directors, the approval of major transactions, and the issuance of new shares. Then you have the management team, which we've been talking about this whole time. The management team is responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the company, and they're accountable to the board of directors. So you see how this hierarchy goes, right? Then if we're talking about corporate uh, social responsibility, um, AKA CSR, this refers to a company's commitment to operate in an ethical and socially responsible manner. This might not matter to some people, but this is something that matters to me. This includes areas such as environmental sustainability, community mm -hmm. engagement, and employee relations. Again, those are all key things. 
Um, then transparent, transparency and disclosure refers to a company's obligation to provide accurate, timely, and complete information to its what to its shareholders and other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. This includes the financial statements that we talked about last week, earnings releases, and other regulatory filings. And we've talked about risk management for the majority of this, I feel like. But again, that's yep. the process of identifying, assessing, and managing the risk that a company may face, which includes both internal and external risk. Um, and then compliance refers to a company's obligation to comply with laws and regulations, including those related to accounting, financial reporting, and corporate governance. So all these things, y'all, you can make a flashcard. You can do this, you know, with your kids. You can pop kit quiz. You can play Jeopardy, you know, what is, and then fill in the blank. Yeah, and the other th the other part to keep this in mind, Jolyn, um, mm -hmm. which is each of these things that you, when you choose to invest in a company, mm -hmm. you should at least know at least two of the board members, board of directors, okay. including the, like, so really three, in if we're including the chairman of the board, you should know where the company stands on the corporate social responsibility. You should, like, you don't have to know who all the shareholders are, but I mean, you can, you know, if you're a shareholder, then that's you. Um, knowing who the management team, that's crucial because when you're making such an investment, though, that it's on a long term, the day to day operations and the focus and where they're at literally plays towards the long term. So when they say that they're appointing this person as the lead here. So, like, for example, you're starting to hear about a lot of folks leaving from one company and going to another company, a lot of folks leaving from Twitter and going to another company to take on leadership roles. It really matters when you look at, say, for example, their track record at those other companies before they go into another company and step into a role in leadership. You know, for example, you know, when people looked at when people looked at Satya Nadella, Sundar Pichai, Pichai or even Tim Cook, you know, a lot of times what people wanted to do was look at their track record. You know, what is it that they've done? Where is it that they come from? Because it gives you an idea of where the company is going, the direction. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at, say, for example, compliance, I think that all publicly traded companies follow that, like have to follow that unless, you know, they're completely lying to their shareholders, which that's <laughs> that would be terrible. Um, and then the same thing as it pertains to transparency and disclosure. So those are the types of things in which that you will look for. And then when you think about risk management, you know, when we say like identifying and assessing and managing the risk that a company may face, you know, those are the things in which that those are the investments that they're making for the long term. And some of them, they may not pay out, but then or play out, but some of them will. And it's just more so a balancing effect of, okay, hey, you know, the probability that this will do well versus the probability that it won't do well. And the fact of where is the, the capital is going, how much are they spending? Um, those are all things. If you're going to be a shareholder in a company, those are the, these are the must knows that, and that's why I put it down there. This is the must know that, uh, that essentially that every investor of a company must know. Like you are, it's like, it's easy to buy shares of a company. It's different to, to know the company that you're invested in. Mm. It's, it's, it's easy for anybody to click a button, but it's harder to know why you click the button and to understand why you click the button and to be okay with even though that you click the button, you understand where the company stands. Okay. So you, you guys know us well enough to know Hi. if we're going to be doing, if we're going to be doing this long lesson. Bring <laughs> <laughs> me <some> energy back. <laughs> we made it to the end. We made it to the end. And so now this is the part where it's, it's time for the homework. So I hope that you're doing the homework because if you are, then it's going to show like, honestly, it, it really does show uh, when people do their homework. Like it's kind of like when a person does, you know, the necessary stuff to ultimately improve themselves to get better. You know, people around you start to see it when when you're putting the time in the gym to get better. Um, so 
let's start off with an objective. You know, the ultimate objective and why is it that we do what we do is so that way each of you can gain a deeper understanding of a lot of the stuff that we talk about. In this particular case, a company's financial strategies and to evaluate their effectiveness. So that's the main objective here. So here's some, here's, here's your homework. I want you to choose a publicly, you don't have to choose multiple, just choose a publicly, publicly traded company. So many of you already like, you know, have already, if you've been doing the homework, then you already have a few publicly traded companies. Just pick one of those. All right. So pick a publicly traded company of your choice. Research the company's financing strategies, including its capital structure, its debt and equity issuance, and other sources of financing. Analyze the company's financial statements to determine its cost of capital. Evaluate the effectiveness of the company's financing, financing strategies by comparing its cost of capital to the returns it generates on its investments, and then prepare a report summarizing your findings and conclusions, including an analysis of the company's financing strategies, cost of capital, and investment performance. If you want to create a, pr a presentation to present to your, to your loved ones or to your friends or to your colleagues. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that each and every single one of you, um, you know, really take that into account and really do the very best. And as it pertains to like looking into these things to ultimately get better. We talked a lot tonight, Jalen. We, <laughs> we did. We greatly talked a lot. Uh, but hopefully that each and every single one of you gained value in tonight's lesson. It was very hefty. It was a lot to go through. I can understand that many of you guys are going to have to definitely pawn the replay quite a few times. Shout outs to our cousins over there in LinkedIn, because this is also streaming tonight on LinkedIn as well. Uh, not only just on YouTube, but also on LinkedIn. So share this within your professional networks. Share this within your colleagues, your friends. You know, the folks in whom wish I would have loved to go for an MBA program, but, you know, or just wants to gain some of the knowledge from an MBA program. But again, make it digestible in the sense that you guys can actually put in the necessary work and trust and believe like, you know, when you start putting in the work, the people around you in your career or other folks, they see it. And like I said, they will want to invest in that, you know, confidence breeds success and success is contagious. So, you know, just keep that in mind. Um, Y'all. <laughs> It's been real. <laughs> it's been real. Thank you for watching tonight's show. I know it was a lot, but hopefully you gained a lot of value in the midst of the time. Until next time, I am Mark Monroe. And I'm Jalen GC in the place to be. And this has been your come up, a.k.a. Executive Education. We will see y'all in the next one. Have a good night, y'all.